And it all came to a head last week when we talked about the crucifixion. And it got a little heavy. We talked a little bit about what it was like for Jesus in that time. But today, the story really gets good. Today, we start talking about some good stuff. So we've been talking about everything that has happened in the story. Up until last week, we talked about the resurrection. We talked about how Jesus had told his disciples, those 12 men that had been following him along for three some odd years, those men that had seen him do incredible things, those men that had followed him, had given up everything to follow him, and there at the end, when Jesus says, surely you will all fall away, and of course Peter pipes up and says, well, not us, Lord, surely not us. But of course they all do. Jesus goes to his fake trials alone. Jesus is given out punishments that he suffers alone. And just as the scripture told, he went silent before his accusers like a lamb before its shears. And not only was he beaten and mocked and ridiculed, but he hung on a cross And with a final breath, yelled, it is finished. But today, we get to see that the crucifixion wasn't the end. It wasn't finished on the cross. You see, the cross was just the beginning. Because of what he did on the cross, he took our punishment, suffered for us, so that we didn't have to. He became our sacrifice. You'll remember from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's what we talked about last week. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, that's the, that's the promise. There were two things that we talked about last week. The whole reason why Jesus did the cross. You'll remember, we talked about it earlier in the, at communion. He was in the garden and he was praying, God, if there's any other way to do it, let's do that. And you remember, if it was our prayer, we would have ended it there. God, if there's any other way, let's do that. Amen. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus' prayer was. God, if there's any other way, let's do that. But your will. Amen. And so he endured the cross on our behalf. He took our punishment so that we wouldn't have to. As a sacrifice for us, he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. But then what? Here he was. He had died. The disciples then start to come out of the woodworks. (laughs) Sort of. They see him buried, placed in a tomb, and then that, what, what happens after that? Anybody remember? They go into hiding. <laughs> the disciples, not knowing what to do at this point, they went into hiding. Which is funny because Jesus had told them this is what was going to happen. 
He said, I'm going to die. They must not have remembered those conversations because they go to a house and they just kind of shack up for a few days. You see, at the time of Jesus' death, the movement had stalled. People were a little unaware of what to do at this point. And then something happened. After everything that they had been through, I always I sometimes wonder why they didn't remember or, or how, why is it they couldn't fathom that what Jesus had been telling them the last three years was going to come true. But you see, what they couldn't remember, what they didn't fathom for some reason, is that death had no hold on Jesus. Let's look in Scripture. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's take a look at some verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Interestingly enough, this is written by a guy named Paul. We know him as Paul. He started his life out as Saul. But Paul becomes, I'd say, one of the most popular voices for the faith movement in the New Testament. But Paul writes something interesting here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I think we should make note of. And not only just make note of, but what Paul says here to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I would say that this is the centerpiece of everything that we are, of everything that we believe. Let's figure out why. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. You see, the resurrection is everything. Last week we talked about the cross. We talked about how Jesus had crawled up, not crawled, but he had been nailed to that cross. He was killed for our sins. And we talked about it in 2 Corinthians where he became sin for us on our behalf. Satan thought that it was over. Christ had been killed. He's done. He's in a tomb. People don't come back from that. And yet, even death could not hold the Son of God. Because three days later, He rose from the dead. And that is the centerpiece of everything that we believe, as Paul is telling us here in 1 Corinthians 15, that if resurrection didn't happen, if Christ couldn't raise from the dead, then our faith is meaningless. Then we have no reason to believe. The resurrection is everything. Now, I think it's easy for me to appreciate those who might have doubts. 
You know, it's funny that when we talk about doubting, I think it's hard for some of us as people who have grown up in the church to say, at some point in our lives, we have faced some doubt. I'll admit that I have. So it's easy for me to appreciate those who might have some doubts. Even those people who follow Jesus, they gave up everything, their families, their jobs, they left it all and they followed him. And yet, even in that moment, even on that Friday when he was killed, they had some doubts. Even after that, even after he came back, there were those that followed him that had doubts. Of course, we remember the story of the Apostle Thomas. Poor Thomas. <laughs> Talks about all through Christian history, about how he doubted. But could we not see our, ourselves in his sandals for just five minutes? It's something incredible to see because even then, even the disciples knew when people die, that's it. People don't come back from the dead. But because of Jesus' power, because he was the Son of God, because Jesus is who he is, death had no hold on him. So let's be clear about this. The cross was the beginning. It wasn't the end. When Jesus yelled out, it is finished, what he simply meant was sin and death are finished. The resurrection is the beginning. The resurrection is the hope. The resurrection is the centerpiece of everything that we believe. You see, what we believe, what we do here each and every week, it's not based on just feelings. It's based on an event. One that we can see played out through history. One that we can see the entire story of the Bible has been leading up to this moment. This event. You see, it's not just a feeling. It's something that we can call our own. It's our centerpiece. It's our foundation. You know, it's so funny that um, modern disciples have turned the cross into the centerpiece of the believer's identity. Uh, when I was in high school and we went to CIY, there was an interesting analogy that one of the speakers made. Um, <laughs> he, <laughs> he sort of likened this idea to, uh, he was talking about the cross and how people wear them as jewelry and and things like that. And he said, have you ever really stopped to think about it for just a moment? Everything that the cross is and everything that the cross represents, I mean, you're wearing a torture device. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be like mice if mice were civilized uh, carrying around uh, necklaces that had mousetraps on them. <laughs> and yet, I understand it. I get it. The cross. It's important. But you see, the cross is just a small piece of the story. It's the resurrection. The cross is just the beginning. It's the resurrection that offers us hope. Our necklaces should have just nothing. <laughs> it should just be nothing. But that kind of makes for a lame logo. <laughs> 
You see, the foundation of what we believe, the centerpiece of our faith, rests solely on an empty tomb. That's everything to us. The cross was just the beginning. And it's so funny to think about that as our centerpiece. And yet when we look at other world religions, when we look at other faith systems, all other faith systems have had a leader that inspired thousands of people. Some did really great things for humanity. But every other faith system that we can look at in the world had a leader that may have inspired many, that may have done really great things, but all of their leaders eventually died and stayed dead. Buddha died of natural causes at the age of 83, and he's buried in Nepal near the Himalayas, the founder of Buddhism. Muhammad died in 632 A.D. of uh, an illness, and he's buried in Medina in Saudi Arabia. Joseph Smith, who's the founder of Mormonism, was killed by gunfire uh, from an angry mob in 1844, and he's buried in Illinois. Charles Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witness Movement, died of a heart attack on a train in Texas in 1916, and he's buried in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, died of a stroke in 1986, and he's buried in California. Interestingly enough, just as a side note, L. Ron Hubbard was once uh, quoted as saying, if you want to make a million dollars, create a religion. <laughs> just thought it was an, I've always thought that was an interesting quote. <laughs> You see, the one similarity between all of those other faith systems is that they all have graves with bones still occupying them. Or at least mostly. There's one that doesn't. There's one faith system that has been going strong for the last 2,000 plus years that has a leader that died, but their tomb has nothing in it. You see, we can still go to the tombs of every other faith system's leader and you can still see the tomb there that's still closed and still has bones or dust in it. And yet, when you go to the supposed tomb of Christianity, when you see Jesus' tomb, the one that we think it is, it's empty. There's nothing there. And that is our foundation. That is our belief. That is our centerpiece. The cross was just the beginning. It is the risen Jesus and our Savior, that is the, the centerpiece. Let's look at Luke chapter 24. Turn in your scripture to Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we see the story of some women going to the tomb where Jesus was buried. Now, so this was a common tradition. This was common practice. When somebody had died, uh, you would then go and embalm the body. You would put spices around it. You would wrap it in fresh cloths, that sort of thing. Uh, it, was a, it was a common practice of the day. And so here in chapter 24 of the book of Luke, 
And we see that these women were going to the tomb, uh, bringing spices they prepared. Uh, and yet, when they get to the tomb, here in verse 2, what is it that they found? Well, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, this is something that we should probably talk about. Jesus' tomb was cut into some rock, and that was a common practice. Uh, and then there was a large stone rolled in, uh, in front of it. Now, because he had been technically killed by the Romans and the Jewish leaders, uh, there were Roman guards standing in front of the tomb. You see, it would have been really easy for Jewish leaders or Roman officials to completely refute the Christian faith. All they had to do was produce a dead body. That's it. And so because of that, they put this large stone in front of this tomb. Now, this stone would have had to have been moved by pack animals, donkeys, ox, what have you. It was large. No human person by themselves could do it. You could probably get a, a really large group of people to do it. But it would take a lot of strength. And even further than that, it's historically believed that over the tomb was put a seal. Now, it, it wasn't like it was glued tight, or glued shut or anything. What they would do is they would take some string and they would wrap it across the front of this, the stone. And then in the middle of that string would be a, a wax, uh, like what you use on a letter. And they'd put a little, little drop of wax, they would heat it up, and they would put the insignia in the wax so you would know who, who was guarding, who it belonged to. And if that string was ever broken, you would know that somebody had tried to mess with it. So not only that, they had sat some, a couple of guards uh, at the tomb as well. They really wanted to protect who was in this tomb. And so when these women get the, to the tomb to tend to the body a few days later, they find the stone rolled away. Now, this would have been probably pretty strange. Because, <laughs> again, it would take a lot of effort, a lot of work, uh, a pretty decent fight, because you would have to fight off the Roman soldiers, to get into this tomb. Verse 3, but when they entered, they didn't find the body. So it was weird enough that they get there and the stone had been rolled away. Then it gets even weirder because there's nothing in the tomb. It's empty. Then we see what happens. We're all probably familiar with the story. They were perplexed about this. And then two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? You see, the resurrection was everything. Verse 6, He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified, and the third day rise again. And then, oh yeah, <laughs> he told us that. Verse 8, they remembered his words. Oh, duh. <laughs> well, it's easy for us to say that, of course. Verse 9, they returned from the tomb and reported all the things to the eleven and all the rest. They were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. Now, 
If it were me, I would like to think that I would be very excited. However, that was not the reaction the women got. (laughs) You see, the women had been to the tomb. They'd seen it with their own eyes. There was nobody there. Two men in dazzling clothing that I have to assume were angels are telling them, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's risen. He told you he was going to do this. Don't act so surprised. (laughs) And so very excitedly, they run back to the apostles, who are still holed up in their house, by the way, and they're telling them what they found. Verse 11, what does it say? They got up with such excitement, they ran to the tomb all together, and they were celebrating and praying. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Uh, But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Have you ever gotten to the point in your life where you just doubted? Man, I know I have. But there was one among them, a little bit of a loudmouth, who decided that he was going to check it out for himself. Verse 12, Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away, marveling, at what had happened. Then things start to get interesting. You see, it's one thing for Christ to rise from the dead, just like he said he had. But how can we know and trust that this happens? The easiest way for somebody to validate a story is with what? Eyewitnesses. (laughs) Eyewitnesses. If something happens... It's one thing for somebody to just tell you that it happened. But if somebody else can corroborate the story as an eyewitness, it makes it all the more powerful. And so in in chapter 24, it continues on as Jesus was walking along the road with two guys. They're talking about everything that had happened over the last several weeks and months. Jesus is asking them what they're talking about. And they're like, man, where have you been? Hiding under a rock? And then through their conversation, for whatever reason, Jesus' identity was hidden from them. But eventually, he lets them see who he is. And there's two witnesses. Then he goes and he meets with his 11. The other one. But he goes and meets with the 11 and he shows himself to his disciples, these men that he had been with for the last three years. And even still, there was that one, man. We talk about him all the time, poor Thomas. <laughs> but I have to think that I would be the same. God, if it's really you, I need to see it. Let me see. And so, of course, he stretches out his hands. He lifts up his robe and he sees this side where the spear pierced him. And so he appeared to the eleven. Well, that's great. So we've got 12 to 15 people or so that that have seen Jesus now. That's a pretty good, pretty good amount of people, pretty good amount of eyewitnesses. You know, if we were talking about a story and we really wanted to believe it, 12 to 15 eyewitnesses, pretty good. But we do one better. Over the course of the next several verses, 
we see that not only was it just the 12 to 15 people that we saw there, the road to Emmaus, the 11 disciples as Thomas reached out for the wounds, Jesus then appeared to over 500 people before ascending back into heaven. 500 people. That's a pretty good amount of eyewitnesses. If I did something really amazing, nobody would believe me, but if I had 500 people that said I did it, that'd be a really good deal. (laughs) Now, this is what started the entire movement. The cross was just the beginning. The resurrection is the centerpiece of what we believe, and now we know that it's an event. We have eyewitnesses to tell us that, yes, it happened. We saw him die. We then saw him alive. That is it. That's the story. That's the centerpiece. Most of these men, after seeing Jesus, we see through the rest of the New Testament, most of these men would die for what they believed. Save for one, John was exiled, died of old age in exile. But the other disciples, they would all be killed for what they believed. Other followers of Jesus lived their lives in such a way that they were not afraid to die for what they saw and believed. Because to them, the cross wasn't the end. It was the beginning. And when they saw Him risen from the dead, they understood that the resurrection was everything. So how did we go from doubt to dying? How did they go from, I'm not really sure I'm too into this thing, man. I mean, they just killed Him and it was pretty brutal. To, I am going to give my life for what I believe. And it comes down to the simple fact that they saw and they believed. And they understood the resurrection was everything. You see, our core event, our core foundation, rather, is an event. It's not a feeling. It's not just words on a page. an event, an event that people saw. There's a Christian author named Reggie Joyner, and he's quoted as saying this. I thought this was so great. 100 years from now, the only thing that's going to matter in your life is what you believe about Jesus. A hundred years from now, the only thing that's going to matter in your life is what you believe about Jesus. When I was a youth minister, one of my biggest struggles as a youth minister was, and I still to this day haven't found a good way to do it, is trying to explain to teenagers that stuff that happens in your teenage years, although they're probably really great experiences for the most part, that stuff just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you date or who breaks your heart. 
It doesn't matter the accolades that you get, although those are fantastic. (laughs) It doesn't matter the scholarships that you get because you're such a great athlete or the trophies that you get for being so academically smart, although those are amazing talents that you should utilize. What truly matters, what each and every one of our lives comes down to in the very end, is what do you believe about Jesus? We saw two of them today show us what they believe. After everything that we do in our life, what is it that you believe about Jesus? That's what matters. And I think that's a hard lesson for some of us to learn. I know from my own life, it's hard. I was fired from three churches and then decided to take a break from church (laughs) and get a real job. (laughs) And that job has given me lots of great opportunities. Opportunities I didn't really have when I was in church. And there was a while in my life where I thought I was just going to be really mad at churches. Because churches didn't understand my methods. (laughs) But what the problem was, was me. (laughs) And I think perspective will give that to you, but we'll do that to you. But through all of those things, and some of those were hard, what really mattered at the end of it all was what I believed about Jesus. Was that I believe that the resurrection is everything. Do we get to a point where we just start Complaining about things to complain. Where we're so worried about what people wear to church or what people say when they're out and about or what people do this and that. When what we should really be worrying about is what people believe about Jesus. What do you believe? Do you believe that the resurrection is everything? Or is it just some great story that makes you feel good? So I have two questions. It comes down to this, these two questions. Do you believe in the event of the resurrection? You see, believing is just the first step. Believing in the resurrection is just step one to making sure that we're living that life that Christ wants for us. Because in James, the book of James, chapter 2, it tells us that even the demons believe about Jesus and they shudder at the idea. That verse has always cut me to the core. (laughs) It's one thing for me to say that I believe about Jesus. It's one thing for me to say I believe in the resurrection. Even the demons believe that. 
So what are we going to do about it? The second question is, do we embrace the resurrection? You see, the first step is believing. But do you embrace the resurrection? If we believe and embrace the, if we believe in the resurrection, the only logical path that we should take is one of surrender to the resurrection and to what Jesus did for, for you and for me. As we think about the resurrection, as we think about what it means for each and every one of our lives, and as we look at what it is as the centerpiece of what it is that we believe, as we think about, do I just believe in the resurrection or do I fully embrace it? I think in closing, I want to talk about four characteristics of somebody living a resurrected life. The first is godly character. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to jump around just for a second. Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, we see this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. Godly character. Do you exhibit in your life love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Oof. That's a tough one for me. <laughs> So first up is godly character. The next is a willingness to endure suffering. Again, these are hard. Acts chapter 5. Let's flip over to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and verse 40 and 41 says this, They took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from their presence of this council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. You see in this story, the disciples and apostles and people who believed had figured it out. (laughs) You see, they figured out the cross was just the beginning. The resurrection is everything. They went from doubting to, yeah, I'm willing to die for this. And so they were brought before the council and officials and flogged for speaking out in Jesus' name and told, stop that preaching stuff. (laughs) And I got to think, man, if it was me, I'd have been like, you got it, man. Absolutely. (laughs) But not them. They had figured it out. They went rejoicing in the fact that they had been considered worthy enough to suffer for his name. Godly character, a willingness to endure suffering. Thirdly, do good work. 
The characteristic of a resurrected life. Thirdly, do good work. Acts chapter 2. Flip back a couple of pages. Acts chapter 2 and verse 45. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. We as a church got to do that not too long ago where we had a yard sale that was free for everybody, anybody to come in and take what they needed. We got to experience this just a few months ago. You see, I think it's long been said that churches should be a hospital for the sick and not a retirement home for the healthy. So what is it that we're doing to exhibit the characteristics of that resurrected life? We're exhibiting that godly character. It's tough. Willing to endure suffering. That one's hard too. Are we doing good work? You see, the early church had figured it out. It's just stuff. Let's make sure if somebody has a need that we meet that need. We as a church are a really giving church. We're really good at this. But are we doing it every day? Are we looking at those around us who have need and giving as we see that need? Are we cutting a check every Sunday? Fourth characteristic of a resurrected life is make Jesus famous. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given men by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. You see these two guys, just common everyday guys, were getting up with such boldness and confidence and speaking to what Jesus had done in their lives. And people recognized that. And dropping down to uh, verse 29 in that same chapter. And now, Lord, take note of their the threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And I wonder if that could be our prayer today. God, give me the things that I need to live a resurrected life. I had a college professor at Ozark who... Every time you would say hello to him, his name is Woody Wilkinson, (laughs) but every time you would say, hey, Woody, how you doing today? His response every time was, brother, I am saved and sanctified. Every time. And I will never forget that every time he did that. (laughs) Because that's what it comes down to, isn't it? 
the cross. Where Jesus suffered and died on our behalf. It wasn't the end. No, it was just the beginning. And that beginning led to the foundation of what we believe. The event of the resurrection. And we can believe in it because people saw it happen. And people saw Jesus risen from the dead. It's not just some empty tomb that nobody took note of. People saw and believed and went out with boldness and spoke about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done and what Jesus can do for you and for me. Are we living that kind of life? Are we today going to take a stand and say, God, I need to live the kind of resurrected life. I want to say that I am saved and sanctified to everybody that I meet. I want to make sure that I'm exhibiting godly character. I want to say that I have a willingness to endure suffering. I want to do good work. I want to meet the needs of the people around me. And I want to make Jesus famous through all of it. Not because of what I'm doing, but because of what God is doing through me. Are we going to take a stand today and are we going to say the cross was just the beginning but the foundation of what I believe is the empty tomb, the resurrection of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and because of that I have hope and I'm going to make Him famous and I want to tell you about Him. Are we going to do that today? Are we going to take that hope and that mercy and that promise and give it to other people around us? Because that's what Jesus had called us to do. You see, He took everything that we had seen from the story. He had taken all of these things, these pieces of this puzzle, and put them together, and He said two things. I want you to love God, and I want you to love other people. That's what it comes down to. And it's all because three days later, the tomb was empty. Father, as we come before you today, as we look to you for help, God, we need your spirit among us, and we need your spirit in us. God, our prayer today is that we would start to think about what it will take for us to start living a resurrected life. Do we exhibit godly character? Are we willing to suffer? Are we doing good work for you? And are we making you famous for it? God, be with us today, but not just today. Be with us as we leave this place. Be with us as we continue to serve you to the best of our ability. And Father, most of all, thank you for the resurrection that gives us the hope and promise of a new life with you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray all of these things. Amen. We want to invite you. If you have a need this morning, maybe it's just prayer, maybe it's something more, but if you have a need, We want to invite you to come forward. There'll be people here to pray for you. There'll be people here to talk with you. Whatever it is you need, if you have one, we invite you to come this morning down forward and we'll pray and we'll talk. We're going to stand and we're going to sing this song, Pass Me Not.